host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockeypedia cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me for this first edition of 2024 for the Hockeypedia cast is my good buddy, Sean Shapiro. Sean, what's going on, man? I didn't realize I got episode one of the year. This is uh, this is an honor, man. Thank you. Yeah, I've been off for two weeks now. Got to uh, got to shake off the rust post holidays. You know, whenever I guess the league takes those three days off um, around Christmas, and then you always get some strange lethargic performances coming out of the break, right? Where you can tell where players have been taking a few days off, maybe eating some bigger meals than usual, enjoying a few drinks with the family, and then all of a sudden they get back out on the ice. It doesn't really look right. And so hopefully we're going to try to avoid that here today on the PDO cast. I'm sure there's going to be a bit of rust for us to shake off, but uh, we've got a lot of stuff to catch up on, or, uh, a bunch of fun topics that I've got planned for us. So I think we should get right into it. Um, let's start let's with this as, as a general theme. It's going to, I'm going to lump all of these like central division topics together with you, right? Because you wrote a big story kind of right around when I went off for the holidays. So I haven't had a chance to talk about it on this show, but it blew up. In the PDO cast Discord, people were talking about it at the time. And so I wanted to get into it here now that we're back about the Predators. I also want to talk about the Stars, a team that is uh, near and dear to your heart, certainly, and, and yeah. has some interesting stuff going on with them. But let's start with the Jets, because they are yeah. on the top of my mind. Uh, they have taken the league by storm. They are playing remarkably well right now, winning pretty much every single time they go out on the ice. And there's a lot of fun stories here. To get into as well, uh, guided of course by our old friend Rick Bonus, but they're doing some phenomenal things. And so, let's get into that and kind of talking about the run they've been on and everything surrounding that, because I think that's sort of, you know, we're going to talk about the Willie Nylander contract, and that's maybe the biggest story in the league today yeah. after recording. But just in terms of the past couple weeks um, since I went on on the little hiatus, it feels like the Jets have been the talk of the league. Yeah, and the Jets. I want to. Uh, it's. It's really interesting to see because I obviously have a unique perspective on this, having covered Rick Bonus from the time he got the head coaching job in Dallas, uh, unexpectedly, the midseason kind of change up with what happened with Jim Montgomery, too. Um, and I've always maintained throughout his time as a head coach in this iteration that I've always felt Rick Bonus was as a head coach, always felt more kind of like the crisis manager, right? Like his his best work in Dallas was coming in when everything was crazy and uneven and going through the ad and going through COVID and all of that stuff. In the rockiest times, he helped a team kind of handle crisis and get through. Really good at that. Um, when the world kind of normalized a bit, the stars under Rick Bonus didn't really work that well. And I think with the Jets... What he's done this year, and to give him full credit and everything like that, it's to me. Um, obviously, he almost created a bit of his own crisis with his comments at the end of last after the uh, after the Vegas series last year. Mm -hmm. But it's to kind of see the Jets rolling along um, without kind of, for lack of a better word, the on ice adversity. You'd think it's impressive to me because this is where Rick Bonus teams typically kind of fall off. Bonus teams typically, they roll along really well when they're coming out of something, but when things keep going well, they kind of start finding ways to shoot themselves in the foot, and the Jets haven't done that. So, obviously, this is a six-game win streak in the stretch, and like, was it a 10-game point streak now, or something like that? Uh, it's, uh, wait, well, something like so that. Here, I'll, I'll give you the stats, because I got them yeah, down, because yeah, they, yeah, they're yeah, all very yeah, impressive. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. dating back to December 1st, when we're going on six weeks now or so since then, they're 14, one and two. They've outscored teams 60 to 30 during that stretch. Um, you know, they're up to first in the league in both raw points and point percentage, uh, plus 39 goal differential for the year is second best. They've got this crazy stat right now where I believe they've gone 29 straight games, giving up three or fewer goals against. And Connor Hellebuck, after a bit of a shaky start, right? He he signs the big extension in the offseason. And then he comes out and he has a few poor performances and there's a lot of hand wringing and people wondering, oh, how is this going to age? Well, he's rocking a 939 save percentage in 17 games since November 15th. And, and to put that into perspective, league average save percentage, as we talk about in the show, is down to 903 this season. So they're doing some remarkable things. And that's kind of a, that, that is a bit of a bonus sta a staple, right? In terms of drawing good defensive results out of his team. Um, I think part of that is you could take it uh, glass half full or glass half empty. I think part of the reason why I've had issues with him in the past, and he's certainly a great people person and communicator, right? And and 
everyone that is in his orbit and kind of comes come across him, whether it's players or people covering him, seem to come away with good stories and liking him, right? He treats people well. Me as an analyst, I've always been a bit frustrated because he seems to default to a more conservative approach, right? Both in terms of player usage, but also tactically, I find. Now, this Jets team is built really well for him in that regard. And, and the defensive results, certainly, like the goaltending has been really good. Laurent Brassois yeah. has been awesome as well as the backup. Regardless of who they have in net, they're getting strong performances. But you look at the team's defensive metrics, and they're also significantly improved as well. And you can sort of see uh, in all these broadcasts, they're talking about how there's been an added emphasis on playoff of the puck, right? And, and weak side support and all this stuff. And you're seeing that in action. And so give them credit because this isn't one of those things where, you know, they're not going to keep winning 14 out of every 17 games they play. Part of that certainly is like a hot streak and and percentage induced somewhat, but the underlying process is really strong there as well. And so I wanted to give that a shout out because it's not just one of those things where, all right, they're winning all these games, but it's going to come to an end soon. Like if they keep playing like this, I do expect them to keep hovering around the top of the league. No, it's it feels like this is actually who they are. That's kind of the, the thing. Sometimes with with teams when we get there, it's we ask the great questions like, oh, are they? Re- is this really who they are? And I think with the Jets, when you look at it and you ask yourself the question, you watch them play and you look at the underlying things, as you noted, this is like, okay, this is who the Jets are. This team is legitimately good. And that's something that I don't think I would have said three, four months ago. That, that's something where it would have, if you had told me three or four months ago the Jets would be top of the league at this point, I probably would have said like, okay, well, it's probably... There's some there's some door escape hatch that's about to open up on this from the top, and I don't see that right now. Obviously, the goaltending will regress a little bit here and there, I think, but in general, like these are the Jets, they are good, and that's I think that's something we need to be comfortable saying right now. Well, I'm comfortable saying that, especially a five yes. five. You look and 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 they've been yes. particularly dominant, right? They're they're surprisingly somewhat 26 on the power play. It looks a little bit different. When they're on the man advantage, I expect when Kyle Connor comes back, that'll improve somewhat. There's too much talent for them to be bottom five or six in the league uh, with an extra man. But yeah, a, a lot of it's there. I mean, during the streak, like they just they destroyed the Minnesota Wild, right? They they had a bit of that resurgence with the yeah. with the new coach bump, and and that quickly got derailed by this Jets team. And since we've last spoken, there's two key trends that have emerged, and uh, I'm going to pitch them to you both here. You can tell me okay. how you feel about them and the sustainability of them. One. They haven't lost in regulation since they embraced Squirtle playing the saxophone. And I haven't had a chance to speak on it on this show yet. I feel like uh, this is one of the key subplots in the league right now. We've seen other teams try to incorporate it, but the Jets were the first adopter. And so I want to give them credit to everyone involved from uh, especially the uh, the game presentation staff, right? That was quick to jump on it and embrace the fun. And I think it's something we all want to see teams do more of. And I, I listen. Uh, that's just analytics. They like they haven't lost the regulation since they started playing Squirtle on the saxophone, and so I think that's a, I think that's a pretty valid trend. I mean, this is the most important story in the league right now, and I'm not even kidding. Um, it is, uh, and I think you just give yourself some credit here because I think the game ops folks in Winnipeg only saw this because of your, your tweeting this, right? Maybe I've got I've got a few followers to be fair, but I do yeah. want to give a shout out to uh to my guy Nick, uh, who. Uh, is a Jets fan and, and covers the team, and 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 he brought this to my attention certainly. And then uh, and shout out to I believe his name's Quint- Quentin Rob, who's the uh, the game presentations person who who jumped on it and saw us talking about it and then incorporated it uh, on December twenty second, and, and they've been on this run since. The other one though, and I think you know all jokes aside, this one is really. I will we will we 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 will get to this one, but I think you need to take your victory lap. The reason the Jets have not lost is because of you. This is this by the transitive property of you sharing squirrel sacks all the way around. The Jets have not lost. Take your victory lap. Enjoy it. Now we can have a serious conversation. Well, I played a small part in it. Let's give credit to Squirtle, though. I think Squirtle is, is yes. playing the biggest role here. And if you haven't seen this video, on the one hand, uh, you should feel shame and you should seek your seek it out uh, intentionally. On the other hand, though, um, I'm a bit jealous because since I watched the video, it's pretty much been just going on loop in my brain and it's all I can think about and it's uh it's turning my brain uh into into a just a rotting pile of mush basically because it's all I can think about um but no it's been it's been really fun the other thing that I want to mention is this stretch kind of coincides with 
them promoting Nikolai Ehlers to the top line, right? And this predates yeah. the injury to Kyle Connor as well because they put him up there. They were playing with Shifley and Connor. Then Connor got hurt and they bumped Velarde into that spot. And we're going on an 18 game stretch now where you look and Nikolai Ehlers is 16 5 on 5 points in that time, which is one behind Nathan McKinnon for the team lead, for the league lead. And the Jets are up 19 to 4 with him on the ice in those minutes. And this isn't certainly anything new for anyone that's been following Nikolai Ehlers, right? We've been pounding the table wanting to see him get this type of a premium feature role because on a permanent basis, he's been one of the most efficient and dominant 5 on 5 players in the league. But now he's second on this team amongst forwards in 5 on 5 usage. So he's doing it on a larger scale and he's taking it to a whole new level, right? And so this is, you know, knock on wood, uh, hopefully health permitting, he can stay playing the way he is right now because it's so fun to watch and he's so good and it's just given this entire organization a different dynamic right we've spoken about this but even at their best they were never necessarily i guess they were that year when they when they made the playoff run um but otherwise they haven't been a 515 dominant team it's been a lot of efficiency from a percentage perspective right and 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 on the power play and in this case with Nikolai Ehlers playing in this first line role they're dominating. And I think that totally changes what the baseline and what the expectations are for this group. And one of the things with the Ehlers, and I can say this just having experience covering Rick Bonus before, um, it's interesting. Like his ice time is up, right? It's like two and a half minutes more per game or something like that. And if you like use the 20 game mark as, as a thing, but you go through and you look at it and he's still getting the exact same amount of shifts. It's like it's still. He's doing this like last the against Arizona this week. He had twenty shifts. I mean, he he was having twenty three shifts the first first three or four games of the season. Even he's playing less time. One of the things that from covering Rick Bonus, I know more about it with how he steals with players is there some there are some guys he gives the longer shift leash to basically, and so he's still giving Ehlers about the same amount of deployment. But it feels like there's more of an understanding and an acceptance from the coaching staff that, you know what, he is that guy who can take the longer shift. And it's it's kind of one of those interesting, like subtle things where if you went through and you if I put game by game shift chart, you wouldn't be able to tell which one was the bigger minute one because of how even the number of shifts are. But just it's kind of that inside inside of the game. Okay, now Rick Bonus is okay with Nikolai Ehlers taking the extra. 10 seconds now and that starts to add up and then we start to see that and move on and on and on and so it's kind of one of those things I, I just wanted to bring up because I looked at that before we came on the show and it's like it's not like all of a sudden they're like calling his name more so yeah no but I, I think it's kind of yeah chicken or the egg it's all tied together in a sense yeah. right where all of a sudden now and certainly I think last year um, even when he was out there he wasn't at full health and, and, and that was talked about a lot and probably a reason why they were really careful about managing his workload, but this is also a player who for years now with multiple coaches, we've been wanting to see this type of usage from, right? Where it's like, all right, the minutes are one thing, but also just the way the organization treats him from like a featuring him perspective, playing him with the best players. And he'd been blocked previously and there'd been little stints where they would mix him in here or there, but it was never a sustained stretch like this. And now, you know, certainly when Kyle Connor comes back, we'll see what Rick Bonus and the coaching staff does and how they reintegrate him and what happens with the four groups. But assuming these three guys in, in Ehlers, Bellardi, and Shifley keep playing this way, I would have a really difficult time messing with it, right? Because they've just been so good and it makes sense from like a skill set perspective. They all add something to the table, but it all kind of starts with Ehlers because he does just so much from a like tr- puck transportation perspective and just watching him fly through the neutral zone is really fun. So um, I wanted to shout him out and I wanted to talk about the Jets off the top because uh, I've been thinking about them quite a bit lately. And I imagine if they keep playing this way, we will keep talking about the Jets. But let's kind of play it here. And it's, and it, and it is a copycat league. Yeah. And what do we want the, and every and for game ops across the league? It's just like everyone deciding they were going to go copy Vegas' uh, defensive uh, approach. And mm-hmm. so the more the Jets win, the more we will all have... Uh, the wonderful performances of game operations with uh, squirrel sacks. So I love it. Um, yeah, I it's it's been so good. Um, you know, through this stretch though, they've built this lead now in the central where they're only up three points on the Avs with a game in hand, but they've built this seven point margin 
on the stars. And after that, it feels like you take another step to the Predators and the Wild and the Blues and the rest of the Central Division teams. But the reason why I want to bring that up is because the impact of this kind of trickle down of that is all of a sudden, if things stayed true to this form, we're looking at the potential of this stars abs bloodbath in round one yeah. in the central. And you and I were speaking about this in the DMs watching the game last Thursday between the two teams. But I was just reminded of the fact that whenever the stars and the avalanche get together, they seem almost incapable of playing a normal game, right? Just all chaos ensues. There's wild swings in momentum, lead changes, outrageous goals being scored, both in terms of randomness and flukiness, but also high level skill. And they seem to bring the most chaotic and I'd argue best out of each other. And so it's obviously a, a matchup that is, um, you know, too good, certainly for, for round one. But also at the same time, it feels like we wanted it last year and we were deprived of it because the Kraken upset the Avalanche. And if we get it, I will have a tough time quibbling with it, even if it is in round one. Yeah, that's the only only issue is it'll be round one. But yeah, I I, I love Stars Abs. It's one of my favorite matchups. It's it's fun. The I, I like how the two teams intention, both coaching staffs, and obviously it's been more so one coach in Colorado and multiple coaching staffs and. Dallas, I like how the two teams go out of their way to uh, nibble at the little ways both sides cheat because they're collectively not good at it. Like uh, Colorado will always, even though Colorado's terrible at faceoffs, no matter who they play against, Colorado will always point out how Dallas players drop to one knee to, to win the draw. And then at the same time, Colorado runs that little pick play in the offensive zone better than anyone. And that's uh everyone runs it but Colorado just does it better than everyone I love I love the little quibbling I love the way it goes I love the fact that Colorado almost went out of its way I'm sure Joe Sackick did this for the drama to add to those little players that like stung Colorado before like the only reason he added Yoel Kiviranta right was so Kiviranta could score a big goal against Dallas that's like there's these other little like uh, side stories of that that add to this from both a hockey and a human side. I, so yes, I love this. <laughs> well, I think the stars are in a bit of a precarious spot here, though, because heading into the season, I think you know their playoff spot or positioning was never really in doubt or jeopardy. So I just viewed this regular season as sort of a a pathway for them to explore optimizing their team, incorporating young players, managing Jake Auditor's yeah. workload, right? Just trying to get the best version of themselves for April and May uh, because I just assumed they would be there and they'd get to go on another long run again. I didn't want to see them just exhaust everything in the regular season when they didn't need to. But now with Miro Haskin out for I have what I assume is going to be a couple weeks, Jake Ottinger has been out for a while. They're all of a sudden kind of in survival mode, right? With this gap increasing and with them not only falling out of first and then now staring down the barrel of a matchup against the Avs, but also not having home ice in it as things currently stand, right? And so all of a sudden now you go from this spot where you take it for granted a little bit to all of a sudden now you're not worrying about making or missing the playoffs, but this is a pretty tough path to be going down if things keep going this way. And not that they have any other real recourse until they get healthy, but it's just, I wasn't really expecting them to be in this position, I guess, 40 games into the season. Yeah, I mean, the injury is obviously a huge factor, right? And like, if they're if they're in this spot right now and Miro Hishkin is healthy, we're not really having this conversation. That's That just kind of shows, um, A, how important Miro Hishkin is, and that's that's fine. And But it also shows a bit of the flaw where when it comes to the Stars' defense, it's been essentially five guys in Hishkin and some of the other guys they could have worked on elevating and, and promoting are now going to get that opportunity because they frankly have to when you probably should have, uh, like you and I have messaged back and forth before about the Thomas Harley usage. Like the fact Thomas Harley is now going to play 25, 26 minutes a night, right? That's going to be the reality. The fact that weeks ago he was still getting 16, 17 minutes a night sometimes is he shouldn't be it shouldn't have been Thomas Harley jumping 10 minutes per game when when Miro Hishkin went out yeah you shouldn't yeah you, you shouldn't need to lose your best defenseman to start playing your second best defenseman a normal amount yes right like that, that this is yes. that's yeah. not how this necessarily works and and I'm with you so on the one hand it's kind of 
it's the silverest of silver linings, but we've seen one game, one full game now without Haskin in the lineup, right? And Thomas Harley mm-hmm. plays a team high 24-22. He leads the team with 21-30 at 5-1-5. In those minutes, the Stars have 87% of the expected goals outshoot the Predators 13-4. He has two assists. It looks great. I want to see more of it. I guess I'm curious to see what they do um, in other areas of the game because, you know, they did have a lot of power of the opportunities in that time, but they did use a five forward uh, first unit when they did have yep. opportunities in that game. And even when Haskinen got hurt and uh, late in that Avs game, in overtime, they were I noticed they were using like three forwards in the three on three. So it is interesting how all of a sudden now you lose Haskinen and all of a sudden... Peter Boer is like exploring all of these extreme measures, which they probably should have been experimenting with to begin with. And it kind of, this kind of forced his hand into doing so. So I'm kind of curious to see how, whether they double down in that regard and keep going in that direction or whether they try to still find some sort of happy medium and kind of try to work it out without, even without Haskin in there. Yeah. And it'll be interesting too. It's a, I think this week's a good week to kind of watch it too, because they play, uh, if I remember correctly, they play Minnesota tonight and Wednesday. And so I think it'll be, it's obviously not a, oftentimes one of, one of the great things about playoff hockey is we get to see how coaches adjust from game to game. So I'm actually really interested to see Dallas tonight and Wednesday and how they A, roll out things tonight and then B, counteract to what Minnesota does. It, I think it's it's a nice little kind of, for us, analyzing the game and watching, it's a nice scheduling gift to kind of see how this Stars team reacts when you get a same opponent. You get, it's not uh, on Wednesday, you're going to have to adjust on Wednesday. You can't just roll out what you did tonight on Wednesday because Minnesota will have adjusted. So I think it's a nice little stretch to learn more about the Stars. Probably not the happiest thing for Pete DeBoer looking at the schedule that way, but for you and I, it's nice. Well, you wouldn't know looking at him on the bench because he's going to have the exact same facial expression <laughs> regardless you wouldn't know if he had just won the Stanley Cup or if he lost his number one defenseman uh, it will be yeah. the both same reaction either my, way my, my, my my favorite Pete DeBoer reaction story is uh this past summer I was at that coaches I went to the coaches clinic in Ann Arbor and he was speaking and he's using a borrowed laptop and he says just in a he's using a borrowed laptop to show clips and he basically says in like the the driest voice he's like sorry uh I forgot to bring my laptop I got knocked out of the playoffs by the team that fired me, and so I decided I wasn't going to bring my laptop and rewatch the clips of anything. So uh, luckily, someone had a laptop with clips of NHL games. Here's a presentation on offensive zone execution. Is that Pete? Is that Pete? We're uh, testing out some jokes, doing a little stand-up. Maybe, comedy. maybe, yeah. yeah, testing out, testing out on on, on coaches that are paid to, paying to hear him talk. So yeah, I mean, I'm not buying that because he is uh, he's a very prepared guy. Yeah, and so I uh, I imagine he's got, he was uh, ready. He got a law degree. Yes, yeah, very smart, very prepared guy. I I, I love Pete. I uh, all the jokes about his facial expressions are uh, I promise coming from a good place. Okay, Sean, let's. Uh, any other notes on on the stars or the Jets uh, before we go to break here? We're still gonna like when we come back, we're gonna talk about the Predators. So yeah, we'll stick with that central theme. Uh, but just before we kind of mm-hmm. put the bow on these two and, and go into break, is there anything, or, or do you think we covered it all? Yeah, no, I think it's. I think we, we've kind of covered it. The one thing on the stars I would bring up, it's just an interesting spot where you talk about a team living and flying so close to the sun cap-wise, and part of that is obviously by nature of what's happened in the cap world, and you get injuries like this, and in theory, this is the time where you're like, oh, we'd like a nice, young, energetic insertion into our lineup, and they just can't do it. Like they have, and not that they need the forwards, but they got the two guys who are leading the AHL in in scoring right now. And it's just kind of one of those, this is the reality of the cap world where would, not that Craig Smith's been bad, but would Maverick Bork be a better, having Maverick Bork in the lineup over Craig Smith right now, would that allow you to play even more in a way you want everything like that? Just It's just an interesting thing. Dallas is just an interesting case study because when you invest so close to the cap, which everyone has to do, and then these injuries happen, it's, it's why hopefully as the cap goes up, things get more comfortable and we get better hockey. Yeah, you'd like you certainly like to see teams, especially in yeah. moments of crisis, have more flexibility and, and optionality. But at the same time, like you mentioned, teams, especially teams that are competing, this is kind of a reality for them. So it is an even yeah. playing field in that regard. It's also something that I think you kind of have to prepare for it to some extent, right? Like you certainly hope that you're going to have your full lineup and you're not going to have any catastrophic injuries. But 
the 82 game regular season is a grind and part of that that comes with the territory of you have guys in and out of the lineup injuries happen and so when teams get into this spot and then all of a sudden their hands are tied because they didn't sort of break it uh bake in the potential of of needing to kind of pull that emergency switch i don't really necessarily feel bad for them either if you know what i mean like it's it's kind of yeah part of the thing and no i no, I, 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 I don't better I don't feel bad for the team. I just think as someone who wants to see better hockey stories and better hockey played, I think it's just kind of that element of it where I, you're, you're you're like, oh, this would be really nice to see and, and what could happen with this. And it's just, it's the reality of where we are. And just, it's kind of, it's more of a commentary on everything. This is just in kind of the tip of the mountain where this impacts every team. So yeah. That's where I was going with this. No, I, listen, I want to see Maverick Bork and, and Logan Stanko and playing in the NHL because I don't really watch the AHL, but I know both those guys are really good. <laughs> and so I want to see more of them on my TV. So uh, anything we can do to ensure that that happens, I'm all for it. And you can uh, you can get my vote for that. Okay, Sean, let's uh, let's take our break here. And then when we come back, we will pick things back up. You are listening to the Hockey Cast streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network. All right, we're back here on the Hockey Cast, joined by Sean Shapiro. Sean, Sticking with the central theme, we've talked about the Jets, we've talked about the Stars. Let's talk a little bit about the National Predators, uh, a team that I've spent, I think, an inordinate amount of time talking about on the show this season because I've been sort of fascinated with this brewing uh, case study or, I guess, tactical experiment that they're trying in terms of uh, totally revamping the way the organization sort of feels and plays on the ice certainly with the new coach they brought in some new players and they're getting they're getting the results out of it but also if you look at sort of you 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 pop open the hood and you look at what's going on underneath it also just looks wildly different than it looked last season for them in a good way and so a lot of that comes back to the coaching of, of Andrew Burnett and sort of what he's brought in behind the bench and the reason why I'm so interested in it is because we often struggle so much with quantifying the impact of coaching, right? So much of it happens behind the scenes in the locker room, uh, managing personalities, dealing with the players, all that sorts of stuff. And we don't really get, we're not really, we don't have access to it for the most part, right? And so when the team's playing well, they're getting the percentages, things are going well, the puck's going in, they're getting saves, they're getting wins. Ah, the coaches, coaching staff's doing great. And then all of a sudden that dries up a little bit and oh, the, the message has gotten stale. We got to fire the coach and bring in a new voice and and we kind of go through this endless cycle of the peaks and valleys of of the shelf life of an NHL coach, right? And in this case, you got this new coach in Brunette and he's come in with a different approach and gotten to play a different way. And we're seeing the the dividends paid of that, right? And so you wrote this story about kind of where he's coming from with it, how he's incorporating stuff from different sports. And I think it's just such an interesting conversation for us to have here. So so let's dive into that and kind of talk a little bit yeah. about um, about Andrew Burnett and what he's been getting the Predators to do on the ice. Yeah, I mean, so it was the the piece was I wrote over at the over at my site, Shap Shots. It was the I think it was December twenty eighth or twenty. It was like the last week of the the new year when I published it, and um, it was we often hear to me one of the most interesting things off the bat was I was having this conversation with Andrew Burnett after a morning skate before Nashville played Detroit. And oftentimes when you hear about coaches borrowing something from other sports, it's like, oh, I took this football coach quote and I like it. It's always motivational. It's always like I found I found motivation from Vince Lombardi or whatever. Like it's it's always that. That's 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 what coaches take from other coaches as motivational tactics. And but then when and as I wrote about it, and people should go read the piece, hopefully, I've, um, he looks a lot at how pro soccer has evolved and and how the evolution of that sport has gone. And he's done a lot of, he watches a ton of, touched, watches a ton of European soccer, watches, he reads about it a ton. And it's one of the first times I've ever heard a hockey coach go and talk about the influence of Jurgen Klopp or Pep Guardiola and how kind of that sport has evolved from a has has become basic has become almost positionless like one of her our non-soccer listeners right for a quick side note of like how soccer's evolved the outside defender used to be a defender 
And now the outside defender in soccer has effectively become what they call a wingback, where that player is a vital part in moving the play. And it's very similar to how you could kind of draw parallels to in hockey now, how we've gone from four men in the rush, four men joining the rush, how the defender, the defense, what is a good defender has changed and how it's no longer one puck, one power play guy and five big bodies. And Andrew, Andrew Burnett, I, I really like the way Andrew Burnett looks at this and, and was really open about discussing these ideas and even has also gone to the extent of right now where he's trying to look at some things they do in basketball to get guys open and everything and like in a small space. So um, I'll let you uh, keep me on track here because it's your show and so, <laughs> well, no, I, he had a great so, quote in that yeah, piece yeah, yeah, yeah. where yeah. he was essentially, he asked the question of like, where do we find space and then how do we attack it? And that's sort of the guiding yeah. principle here in terms of what you're trying to accomplish. And I find that so fascinating because I've spoken about this with Jack Hahn a bunch on the show for this season. And, and I know he wrote about it on his sub stack as well, but yeah. like from a tactical perspective, which is something we don't. There isn't enough coverage of in the sport, quite frankly, right? And I understand yeah. it's more difficult to sort of identify than it is in like football and and even basketball or, or soccer or any other yeah. sport you want to say, right? It's more free-flowing, certainly, more chaos, more randomness, more moving parts, uh, and it all happens uh, much more quickly and fluidly. At the same time, though, that's that's not good enough from my perspective, right? And, and, and that's why I try on this show to kind of identify some of this stuff and when there are certainly noticeable changes kind of pointing that out and then seeing whether the results reflect that. And you see with this team, they're 13th offensively in expected goals generated. They're fifth in the league in slot and inner slot shots, and they're ninth in offensive zone possession time, right? And when you look at this group, I know that Philip Forsberg's playing phenomenally well. They brought in O'Reilly. Gustav Nyquist has been arguably like their second best offensive player this season. They brought in different personnel. Um, over the offseason, but for the most part, you look at the names and the, and the depth chart, and it shouldn't be a team that that has those ranks, right? And so from a coaching perspective, they have to be doing something. And then you listen to Jack Hahn talk about it, and, and, you, and you watch them yeah. play, and you can see that in action where the forwards, essentially, to summarize it, are living much more in the middle of the ice, right? They're, they're trying to kind of pack the paint and constantly move back in, and they're asking their defensemen to control the flanks and the walls and pinch down more and basically play deeper in the offensive zone and become much more involved. And so that's certainly more taxing on defenders, but they are getting better results out of them. Uh, a guy like Roman Yossi, early in the season, there, there was a note about how Brunette certainly wanted him to keep playing, is playing the way he had because he's been so successful yeah. over the past handful of years, but he just wanted him instead of carrying the puck always himself to try to move it up the ice more quickly to get the team in more attacking positions and then join the rush as a trailer and become more involved that way. And he's been having a much better 5-on-5 season than he had the past couple seasons, certainly. And so you're seeing all of this now, and this is a team that is dominating uh, around the net. They're getting a ton of second chance and third chance opportunities off of rebounds, and I think that's a big reason for that is because of these tactical changes that Andrew Burnett has implemented, right? And so it's kind of cool. It's just satisfying from my perspective, sort of see someone trying this and then getting these results. And this isn't, they're not, you know, taking over the league. We talked about the Jets in terms of how the way they've been playing. Like, you know, they're still middle of the pack, certainly, but I think it's been a massive step in the right direction for the Predators. And in terms of what they wanted to accomplish, I think they have to be very happy internally with what they've seen through these first 40 games. Well, and, and to me, one of the, the biggest underlying parts of all of this is the fact that, um, because as I was talking to Andrew Burnett about this, this is not Barry Trotz hockey, right? Like we look at the way Barry Trotz coached, had coached in his career and how he ran teams and Barry Trotz is the GM. And um, like Burnett even acknowledged it to me. He's like, I'm sure Barry sits up in his box sometimes and says like, ooh, this is this is a bit risky for my liking. But I, I think that's, to me, that's one of the most important things about all this is where Barry Trotz easily could have been GM slash boss and said, well, no, I kind of know what we're doing, what we, how we coach hockey. I, I I think that's another part that we need to bring up is that you have someone in the GM seat who's A, building the roster, that, but that B, even with their resume, isn't coming down and second guessing that we're doing something different. And I think that's another big part I wanted to kind of just highlight as we talk about it, because 
Barry Trotz easily could go and say, well, look what I've done in Nashville. Look what I've done in my career. I've won a Stanley Cup as a coach. You have to do it this way. And I, I think the fact that he that this team doesn't look like a Barry Trotz team is a huge compliment to Barry Trotz, the GM. So, Yes. I mean, I think what we have to remember about Brunette as well is that, what, he was an assistant coach for like a couple years, and yeah. then he got thrust in season into being a head coach and he certainly got schooled by John Cooper in that playoff series but then he goes and he spends another year as an assistant on the Devils and then now he's back in this position and we don't typically think of coaches this way because like we just become we just assume they're sort of finished products essentially and then and then especially we think of coaches being set in their ways and kind of curmudgeon and 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 becoming very stale and so they become known for one thing and then that's just who they are right and in this case, I think it makes sense that a guy like Andrew Burnett, with how long he's been doing it, or lack thereof, like there would be improvements and changes and developments and stuff that we would typically attribute to a young player in their fourth or fifth season in the NHL. And maybe it makes sense that a coach like this yeah. would also experience some of these changes in terms of like learning things that went well and things that didn't go well in previous stops and then trying to implement them and incorporate them and tinker on the fly. Like it makes sense that that's what we'd be seeing here from them as well. Yeah. And I, I like that brunette was, because uh, he got kind of, I mean, obviously Florida hired Paul Maurice and went to the Stanley Cup final last year and everything like that. But one of the things that I think brunette got a bit of a raw deal on was, and yes, he got out coached in that series by John Cooper. That's a hundred percent fact, but the way that Florida team, kept humming along after he took over. I know within Florida's ranks, they kept kind of giving a lot of that credit to Quenville, where it was more so, oh, well, Quenville's, Quenville kind of, even though they couldn't, they couldn't really say it publicly, obviously, because the way that Florida's, the way, the reason Quenville was no longer the head coach, but they really internally gave a ton of credit to Quenville for the way he just kept things humming along, as opposed to, as he set such a strong base that anyone could have done it. And I think Andrew Burnett deserves more credit for what he did in the regular season in Florida. Obviously, he takes the the blame and 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 got completely outcoached by John Cooper in the Tampa series. But I, it's nice to see a coach, and a human, right? Like he took the negative from the end of his time in Florida, and still kind of uh, learned from it. And it wasn't so. It's kind of you talk about evolution and growth and. I think I'm making the exact same point as you, and it's you're the radio host here, so you can get me, help me make a viable point on this. But I, I think I, I like what Andrew Burnett, how Andrew Burnett has responded to that after he got a bit of a raw deal at the end of the time in Florida, is what I'm saying. Well, because you can trace that evolution as well, right? Because, yeah, like obviously Vasilevsky was amazing and Kucherov was phenomenal, and, and that's partly why they lost that series. Like Tampa Bay superstars were better than Florida's in it. But yeah. part of the frustration was the Panthers played a certain way in the regular season and had a lot of success doing so. And then Tampa Bay essentially took that away and dared them to try anything else. And they had no adjustments to it. And it makes sense that a first time coach who's never really had to do that before would struggle to to do that on the fly, especially with all that adversity. And then he goes to New Jersey. And ironically enough, that's the biggest leap they made last year, going from purely a rush team to one with much more sustained offense and ability to just keep you hemmed and really just suffocate you offensively that way. And then now he goes to Nashville. That's something they've become really good at, right? Keeping the puck deep in the offensive zone and cycling you to death and getting those uh, second and third opportunities. And the Devils team he leaves, listen, they've had a lot of injuries, right? Not having Hughes and Hishier for big chunks of it. It certainly hurts Dougie Hamilton as well. Like, There's many reasons why the Devils aren't having the reason or the season that we expected from them. But ironically, like that's also something that they've massively regressed at as, as well after Brunette left. They've all of a sudden become much worse at that. And so um, I don't know how much of that is sort of, you know, causation correlation, but it, I, I couldn't have helped. And so so um, I wanted to give Brunette credit for that. And uh, it's I've been really enjoying watching this season from the Predators, and I'm going to be curious to follow them the rest of the way. So I think it's a really cool story, and I think you did an awesome job kind of illustrating that and chatting with him. And it was nice to see him be open as well about it, right? Because uh, I've become very tired of like the, the 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 cliched quotes from coaches and not really getting much on them, especially during the season. And so in this case, uh, you actually got a few 
sort of, I think, action actionable quotes from him that made a lot of sense and, and enlightened us about sort of what he's trying to accomplish in Nashville. Well, I, and I loved how it was kind of, uh, um, my buddy Prashant and I have talked about this before. I love when there's stuff where you can take one piece of intel and publicly publish it and share it and everything, and then it allows other people to go deeper on it. Like I, that That's one of my favorite parts of that story, where I'm able to take that story and write it, and then Jack is able to go and do a little bit more of, hey, let's go through this directly, even if he was getting grilled for putting the wrong piece of meat in his picture. Um, and uh, But I, I, I love that. I, I kind of love that part of this whole story of how it evolved, where it was like, okay, here's the opening. Let other people kind of expand on it. And I think that's kind of one of the one of the things that is, for whatever reason, I think we used to have more of it in hockey media coverage. And for some reason, I feel like it's closed down a little bit more. So it felt kind of a little bit, it felt nice to see that happening. Um, so anywho. Really cool. Okay. Let's end today's show by talking about the Willie Nylander contract. We are we are chatting, of course, on a, uh, a Monday early afternoon and uh, the contract came down today. It was, you know, essentially reported over the weekend by Elliot Friedman, but uh, it became official today. Willie Nylander signed an eight-year extension, uh, $11.5 million per full no-move clause, 75% of it, I believe, in signing bonuses. So essentially checked every single box I think you'd want from a player perspective. Now this contract runs age 28 through 35, I believe. And there's many ways we can take this, right? Take it from a player perspective. We can take it from a team perspective, I think. With all of these contracts, even you keep coming back to it as, all right, the salary cap's going up 5%. You expect that boom to keep coming. And so that certainly factors into this as well. What do you think is the most interesting part of of this piece of news, whether it's from the team or, or, or from the player angle? Um, Well, the most interesting part is Nylander got everything he wanted, right? Like that's, that is at the end of the day, that's the, the player ended up, I find hard look you're looking at this deal and you're trying to pretend to be fly on the wall and everything like that and you try to figure out did he give any concessions like on this like and it's you you go through and sometimes there's the team will like the team didn't get anything on this that's the most interesting thing to me on this where even all the way down to the full eight years of the no move clause right like even sometimes the team will at least get like oh we'll year five through five through seven six through eight we'll get the 15 team no trade or whatever like that that to me is the most interesting thing off the bat and um i'm not sure if that's one of those things where from how their negotiations last summer what i mean friedman's reported that this is the number nylander was always pushing for so maybe there was never going to be an opportunity to get done last summer I, i don't know but to me that's the that's the that's the most interesting thing for this where nylander got everything he wanted on this and i have a hard time finding where the Leafs got the concession at all, even even in, in like a small parlance. Well, you know what the concession concession is? He decided what? to keep playing in Toronto for the Toronto Maple Leafs because that's, that's fair. That's he fair. Was that's fair. An unrestricted free agent to be, and mm-hmm. if they didn't give this contract, I know many teams that would have gladly stepped up to the plate and given him this right. And so, yeah, I I get it because we've become so conditioned to just like viewing it through the team lens of getting players to sign for less than they're worth on the open market to give you room to add elsewhere and to build a cup contender and win a Stanley Cup doing so, right? And so we often think of it through that way. And certainly you look and I think other teams have have done a better job for a variety of reasons of getting their players to lock in on more team-friendly deals. At the same time, though, I don't really know what the alternative is because this is a player who in a contract year is just having an absolutely monster season and is worth every penny of this, right? So it's not a team-friendly deal in the sense that it's kind of roughly market value. I think Dom even has his market yeah. value at around 11 to $11.5 million uh, based on the way he's playing right now. But listen, he's on pace for 47 goals, 120 points. He's fifth in the league in shots, fourth in inner slot shots, and it's not even percentage-induced. Like, he's having a contract year, quote-unquote, but it's because he's playing more and shooting more, not because he's getting lucky. And so if you're telling me that a player who's in his prime now is going to keep playing this way, then he's worth every penny of this, and I don't really know what the alternative from a Leafs perspective was um, to doing this, I guess. 
Well, no, I I agree with you on that. My point was more so it's I'm it's it's more so from my perspective on kind of the player getting everything is a it's what he deserved. I'm glad he didn't take less, right? Like so often in the sport we talk about like oh it's a team first game like we want the cap to go up, we want better players to play, we want all this, we want the, like you need players to take deals like this. That that is kind of and so it was pleasant from a my typical I cover hockey mindset to see how guys kind of give in to the team system and oh I don't want to make more than this or whatever. Like I, it was really nice to see from that perspective. I, I kind of want to clarify on that because it is he would have gotten this money from someone else. Hundred percent would have happened. And it's hopefully it's the space where other players see it and continues to push players to actually fight for what they're worth because sometimes we don't see that so um i wanted to clarify that because i don't i don't i'm not upset with willie i'm not upset with Nylander for this contract at all i'm just more surprised from my traditional hockey mindset thinking and covering this sport that he was able to get this done without there being the like well yeah we got to do this so if that makes sense yeah the only thing that didn't really work out for the leafs throughout this entire process was sort of the timing obviously i guess not taking advantage and, and winning during it, um, certainly, mm-hmm. but just in terms of like how they executed this, because on the one hand, you can look at, you know, how teams were built, like let's say, um, you know, McKinnon's deal with the Avalanche, right? Coming off the ELC, uh, not performing up to what you expected. They're able to lock him in on this team friendly deal, which they, um, you know, reap the rewards of for years to come. Similarly with Jack Hughes in New Jersey, their players for the most part performed up to their max potential and then got paid accordingly, right? You could argue, I guess, that Willie, ironically, is the one who was playing for under $7 million the past couple seasons. And I know that deal was sort of criticized when it was signed and it wound up being a really favorable one for them. But for the most part, it's just that these players performed in these key leverage moments, I guess, when they were due for for pay raises. And so when that happens, it's kind of you're, you're backed into a little bit of a corner, I guess. You know, you could take it from the perspective of the future of player contracts, which I think you kind of hinted at there, and with the cap presumably going up year over year, and also this offensive environment we're in, where everyone is starting to put like the baseline is is increasing so much for what a productive offensive season is, and how that is going to be reflected in future player contracts. I think is interesting. Um, I don't know. Do you have any sort of thoughts on that? I guess, or, or sort of how that's going to change? Because I think maybe our our collective expectations are going to have to be recalibrated a little bit. I know we've seen that in the NBA, for example, where just like the the dynamic changes, right? And something we've become expected or conditioned to expect from player contract perspective is I think the dynamics of it are going to change in the coming seasons. Oh, yeah. And it's um, like it, it goes hand in hand, obviously, with the cap going up. We're going to when, when we see a double digit, like I saw... Uh, Somebody quote uh, tweeted the the way after right after they right after signing. I think maybe Mark Lazarus or something like that. Where it was like Vegas was the was the first team to win the Stanley Cup with a player making more than ten million, and now Toronto has four. And to me, that's not that's a that's a bad kind of example, just because three four years from now, with the cap going up, a team having less than four double-digit million-dollar players is going to be more of the... is is, is going to be is going to be the uncommon part. Where, so I, I think that's kind of... It's just kind of a nature to it, a reminder of where this is all going. Because um, we... Our eyes like, oh, when we see double-digit millions, oh, wow, that's, that's surprising. But that's... This is... That's kind of peanuts compared to what we see in the other sports. We see a guy get double... Di- like, a guy has to make... For us to start having her eyes pop at an NBA contract, there's got to be at least a two in front of it, right? And when it comes to the millions and it doesn't, I think this is just kind of the reminder in a good way that the NHL hopefully is going to have players making what they're worth and and everything like that. And at the same time, it's also going to be very interesting from a team kind of perspective of how do you fill in your roster spots seven through Twelve in the future, because that's going to be a huge thing that this that happens right now, especially in the next three, four, first three, four years of this deal. Yeah, you're just going to have to be ruthlessly efficient, right? With with finding like, ELC contributors, but also just like not wasting money on players who aren't worth it. I think we need to change the like totally rewire 
or, or reframe the way we think about this because you see people get upset for when a player who's just objectively by any measure worth like $10 million, let's say, get 11.5. And people are like, oh, that's such an overpay. This is this is going to cripple the team. But then when a player who's worth the league minimum gets 2.5 million, it's like, oh, well, you know, whatever. It's, it's, it's peanuts in the grand scheme of things. It doesn't really yeah. matter. And it's like, no, that is actually where you hurt your team moving forward when you sign replaceable players to money beyond that. Whereas I never have any issue with signing your best players to every penny they're worth. Obviously, you'd like ideally to get some sort of a discount to keep them, especially if you drafted and developed them. But that's that's just that's changing. And so if you if that's what it takes to keep a Willie Nylander, I will uh, I will never begrudge a team for doing so. So that's kind of where I stand on it. I I agree. Yeah, and as a GM, you have to as a GM and. It's the way that it's tough for fan bases and hockey fans to think about is you have to be you have to be willing to cut all emotional ties with your scrappy third liner, right? Like too often we get the guy who's like, man, he's uh he's a uh, he he's done a lot for this team and everything like that. But you know what? You got You probably have a guy. Ninety percent of the guys who you talk about like that, you probably have a guy in within playing in the AHL who could do the exact same thing, and. That's just the reality of it. And so some teams are going to teams that don't have the big name guys and everything like that, who they're going to end up overpaying for that scrappy third liner that everyone loves. But the good teams are going to be more and more of a revolving door. It's going to be um, like, what is the, in, in North American sports, like we use the, the Patriots are probably one of the best examples of a, other than one guy, Tom Brady, Everyone else was replaceable. And that's kind of how, as a hockey GM, you're going to have to continue to move forward. Okay, I get my two, three guys. That's it. Everyone else, I can find a guy who's literally doing the same thing in the AHL right now. Not everyone else, but in the depth spot. So, I agree, Sean. All right, we got to get out of here. Um, everyone go follow Sean Shapiro on on Twitter, uh, go read his Substack Shap Shots and read his work at EP Ringside, uh, where you can read my work as well. My only plug is to uh, go join the Discord community and the Discord server. Uh, invite link is in the show notes. We will be taking mailbag questions from it further, so get in there. And we'll be back tomorrow with a. Uh, we're bringing back Daryl Belfry. We're picking back up uh, with regular scheduled programming. We're doing David Pasternak deep dive, so looking forward to that. And uh, yeah, it's good to be back. Uh, hope everyone had a good holidays. Happy New Year. Looking forward to to doing this on a regular day-to-day -day basis again. So that's going to be it for today. And we'll be back tomorrow with plenty more of the Hockeypedia guest streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network.